to That Time When, the comedy history podcast where we talk about strange things that have happened in history. I'm Amelia Edwards, and with me, as ever, is Barnaby King. Hello there. I hope you have a good episode for us this week. Well, no. Oh, well, I haven't prepared one. (laughs) Bye then. (laughs) Bye, listeners. (laughs) No. Short episode this week. Okay, because exciting news for our listeners... We're, we're getting married. <gasps> we are? Yes. Oh, since when? Well, actually, since last week, we're getting married. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Whoops. Yes, we're recording this in... The, of course, we're recording this in the past. We can't be recording this in the future. God's sake. Magic. <laughs> but as a result of this, our best person, as an equivalent to a best man, is here with us from Australia. That explains who this mysterious person sitting across from me is. So, hosting our episode today, we have a guest host for the first time in that time when history, Fiona Milway. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Oh, I'm quite intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) Fiona is one of our most ardent fans. (laughs) I'm also sitting like right across the table from you and it feels like I'm at a job interview. Absolutely. What are your qualifications as a podcast host? Oh, absolutely none. Although I can apparently skim read Wikipedia pages. Excellent. That's pretty much all you need. That's 100% what I do. I've just copy pasted a bunch of mine. Do you know what? I actually did research in old newspapers using, and this is just a shameless plug for my old employer, Trove, Australia's premier, <laughs> some, like, historical, cultural, search engine type thing. If you need anything Australian that's old and out of copyright, you can probably find it on Trove. Do you know what? That's actually really useful, and I should have known that when we did the Ned Kelly episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. So, what do you have for us today? Uh, Well, today I would like to tell you about an ambitious military operation, uh, to quote, one which failed most miserably and which brought for the enemy its most complete victory. And the incongruity of the whole thing even had the effect, for once, of arousing public sympathy for the enemy. Okay. It is, of course... Are we talking about the Iraq War? (laughs) (laughs) No, Barnaby. No. (laughs) I'm, of course, talking about that time when Australia started a war against emus. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Tell us more. Uh, so cast your minds back. We're going to go back to the end of World War One, And I'd like you to imagine that you're one of the 38.7% of Australian men aged between 18 and 44 who enlisted to fight in the First World War. I am all of them. Excellent. Uh, for many of these Australian soldiers, when they came home after World War One, they were a little bit, little bit traumatized. Disappointed. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> PTSD. <laughs> Certainly, lots of that. Um, they were also, you know, slightly on the miffed side to find out that uh, the the wonderful, well-paying jobs they'd left to go fight for their country uh, weren't weren't exactly waiting for them when they mm. got back. Yeah. Who had the jobs? Emus. F***ing birds taking all our jobs. Um, so uh, Australia, is, like many other kind of countries, also did set up uh, something called soldier settlement schemes uh, that were designed to kind of provide returning soldiers with cheap and easy opportunities to buy land and earn themselves a living. Um, now I'm going to quote from a 2019 article from Tim Leaf, the ABC. The scheme aimed to bring peacetime prosperity, give ex-servicemen employment, open up virgin country 
to agriculture and bolster regional Australia. Um, by virgin country, do you mean that it was land owned by Aboriginal people? Uh, I mean, lots of it, yes. So, uh, colonialism in Australia is always a fun thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's not get too woke here. <laughs> <laughs> we love talking about colonialism, usually British colonialism. Yes, colonialism. It was nothing but positive, right? A hundred percent. It brought so many benefits to people, as I think Michael Gove said. Was yeah, it probably. <laughs> or Jacob Rees-Mogg, one of the twats. Yes. Oh, definitely Rees-Mogg. Yeah. Rees-Mogg yeah. has definitely said something about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yes, lots of this land would have been kind of traditional cared for and uh, utilised by uh, Aboriginal nations, certainly. Um, the, the land that we're going to talk about today was uh, sort of on the border of the Nyaki Nyaki and the Kalame country. Okay. Uh, so it's about sort of 100 kilometres east-ish <laughs> of uh, what we now know as Perth. Right, okay. I have to say, Australian names are just the best. What was it? Nyaki Nyaki. So that's the language group, yeah. Ah, yeah. So um, good. Yeah. <laughs> We've been having I mean, fun with Australian names while you've been here. <laughs> I mean, you live right next to Wymondham, pronounced Wyndham. <laughs> I don't think the English can talk. No, but it's, you know, it's funny, just in a different way, right? <laughs> you come from somewhere else. <laughs> Yeah, so a lot of this land, like, traditionally would have been uh, occupied and cared for by uh, First Nations people. But obviously, white people came in, as we do, and kind of killed a lot of people and took them off their land. Great. uh, Because we just said there was no one there, Mm -hmm. even though we knew we were moving people off it. That's fine. That's that's, that's perfectly normal. Look, they weren't white, so they don't. (laughs) Counts. <laughs> and you can quote that for like Amelia Edwards. <laughs> yeah, really, you could get business cards printed out with that. Yeah. You'd be very well in the Tory party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so basically uh, what the, the soldier settlement scheme meant was that returning soldiers could buy or apply to buy parcels of land for, for very little money, providing they agreed to live on that land, use that land, Basically, you know, contribute to a greater Australian nation and blah, blah, blah. How easy was this land to farm? Like, was this land you actually want? Um, so, yes and no. Okay. (laughs) The yes is good. Uh, so the area we're going to talk about today uh, in WA is known as the Wheat Belt. Ooh, so that sounds promising. So it was very good for, for growing wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, but like all of Australia, it's some, somewhat temperamental in nature. And uh, obviously it, it used to have these kind of very uh, well-bedded in, I guess, weather patterns. And then, you know, us white folks came along, chopped down all the trees, put sheep there instead, mm. and everything sort of went to shit. Does when you introduce sheep, they're not good for an environment. Yeah, definitely the sheep's fault, listeners. <laughs> definitely the fault of the sheep, not the white people at all. No, not at all. Just because we bring the invasive species doesn't mean we're responsible for them. <laughs> so, um, you know, people, people, they were coming back from war. 
nothing was really like as they'd left it. They might have gotten used to kind of better conditions while they were out fighting uh, because life in Australia was pretty tough at this time. Um, so the, the soldier settlement scheme was really popular. Um, after about five years of operation, just in Western Australia alone, they'd allocated well over a thousand uh, settlement farms to different people, oh, Jesus. totaling uh, 9,094,711 acres. Oof. So it is a Big chunk of land. Yeah. Basically the size of the UK. Yes. <laughs> uh, pr- probably, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like, you, you, I, can, I can sometimes put myself into a bit of a panic when I think about the size of Australia. It's too big. Make it smaller. It is f***ing huge, yeah. yes. So uh, you won't be surprised to hear that out of these settlement farms... Were given to Indigenous Australians. You shock me. Oh, so even though a lot of uh, First Nations people did go out and fight in the First and Second World War, uh, they didn't really get much of a look in when they came back. So, uh, so in Victoria, uh, this is the only one I could find stats for. There were more than uh, eight thousand six hundred of these settlement farms given out. Guess how many were given to First Nations soldiers? Well, given what you've said, I'm going to go with ten. Close. Ooh. Two. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Right. So they weren't completely racist. <laughs> <laughs> just very, 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 very racist. Just, just a nice little bit of tokenism right there. Just to be like, yeah. we're not racist. Look at these two farms. Yeah. So, um... Like I mentioned, like life, life on the land in Australia, especially in these like remote communities, was not always the easiest. Mm. Um, particularly when you kind of go and you, you attach yourself to like one area of land, so that when things are a bit difficult in that area, you're not really kind of mobile enough to be able to go and, and yeah. go go to where the water actually is, for Isn't example. This kind of the point of having a nomadic lifestyle in the first place. Yeah. Like, yeah. you can move from place to place. Yeah, so you go you go to the places where, you know, there is food and water at those times of years, mm-hmm. where the migratory birds have migrated, so there's a, you know, a plentiful food source. You don't completely, like, suck dry the land of everything that it has by just, like, I don't know, sucking the marrow out of the bone day in, day out, until it's just this dry shell i mean if i've learned one thing from the lion king that is that is the thing i've learned you go where the pride goes yes absolutely <laughs> and also don't introduce a huge amount of hyenas yeah that is true yeah f***ing hyenas hyenas in australia no okay that's good that's a start no one thing the white people didn't bring amazing <laughs> not yet anyway <laughs> we restrained ourselves <laughs> but for how long <laughs> Uh, so, like, let's turn around to sort of the, the early 1930s now. So people have been kind of settling into their farms. They've mm-hmm. been trying to do what they can do. Uh, They've 19... 11-year-olds by now. Ooh. Well done, them. <laughs> um, so 1929 rolls around. Massive... Depression? Yeah. <laughs> Great big depression. And, you know, Australia is a few years behind the rest of the world in mm. these things as it happens. But, you know, 
Even Australia notices the effects of the Great Depression. Uh, this also kind of coincides with a, a massive drought across Great. the country. Yeah, Great. fantastic okay. for farmers. Wheat doesn't need water at all. <laughs> Um, and also the, the Australian government was like, oh, everybody, let's all grow wheat because that's how we'll fight the depression. And then everybody did grow wheat. Mm-hmm. And then what do you think happened next? Did the price of wheat plummet? Yeah. Amazing. It actually did. <laughs> um, so people were pretty unhappy already. Mm. They should have grown tulips instead. I hear that's always profitable. <laughs> Nothing bad ever happens when you're dealing with tulips. No. Just a shame they weren't an eel country, hey? <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Greenlee, if he's still listening. Oh my God, you're such a bay. I love your Twitter so much. Um, so, yeah, going through this, like, international recession, uh, the droughts hitting them pretty bad, the price of their one commodity that they've been told by the government to grow mm. has fallen through the floor, uh, the subsidies that government had promised them aren't being paid. You shock me. <laughs> the Australian government, they never, never, <laughs> never miss a beat, these ones. Um, they learned well from the British governments. Mm, so into all of this, we throw some 20,000 emus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but who's throwing the emus? Well, so the the emus are sort of self-throwing, shall we say. They're self-propelling emus. I think they've Um, been sent in by Big Emu (laughs) to try and mind control the population. No, don't you know birds aren't real? They were created by the government. Oh, yes, of course. um, As some kind of drone to spy on the populace. So that's what these emus are doing. I mean, to be fair, have you seen an emu, Amelia? They are bonkers. I've been bitten by an emu once. Have you? Yeah, at a zoo. (laughs) I I had some food in my hand. And, and it it was um it was definitely wanting that food. It lunged for my hand. Mm. It was really quite alarming because mm. I wasn't even that close to it, but it stretched out its neck much further than I expected it to be able to. Yes. So emus emus quite big birds. They can yeah. get up to uh six foot two or almost two meters tall. Wow. Uh they can weigh quite happily up to sixty kilos. Um, and can reach speeds of 30 miles per hour. Whoa, really? That's f***ing terrifying, isn't it? Well, you always see them on on Facebook videos and YouTube videos being really cute. Like, there's one that's on a golf course that's bouncing the balls because it thinks that they're <laughs> eggs and might crack, but it keeps bouncing them on, like, hard surfaces. I mean, you can say that, but since I was bitten by that emu, I assume every emu is a bastard. <laughs> so, they do look like... Basically, someone with an incredibly long sock puppet, yeah, wearing a very dodgy wig, <laughs> uh, with sort of a, a little sock toe beak and two eyes that look like they've come from some kind of Victorian taxidermy. They look like a Pokemon. They kind of do. They've got these strange blue necks that are sort of like yeah. slightly baggy. Um, and then these ridiculous bodies that look like a mountain that has been kind of like shaped out of potato sacks <laughs> on top of the world's like completely flat base to their body for no, like, <laughs> no real reason. Um, and then these two like impressively long, 
sturdy legs with these like insane claws at the bottom, like really quite threatening claws. So we know why Barnaby is a hater of the emu, but it sounds like you also have some kind of emu-based grudge. What's what's your issues with emus? Um, I I don't. I, you know, I personally have uh, maintained very amicable relations with emu kind, uh, but you can see looking into their eyes that they do remember very vivid, viscerally what it was like to be a dinosaur. And frankly, they don't think people are giving them the respect they've earned. They want you dead. Oh, oh, absolutely. Emus will fuck you up. But they're much cuter than like cassowaries. <laughs> Cassowaries are scary. Emus are their cute cousins. So, yeah, cassowaries are like a toddler has sort of painted a dinosaur. <laughs> um, they are all kinds of unimaginable colours. They are they are smaller than an emu, but way heavier. Like cassowaries have bulked up solely for the purpose of messing you up. Cassowaries, unlike emus, emus are normally, you know, quite timid. Don't really, don't yeah. want to start a fight. But if you get into a fight with an emu, you're going to lose. Okay. Cassowaries go out looking for the fight. Yeah. Yeah, cassowaries are kind of like aggressive gym bros covered in knives. Yes, but decorated by toddlers. <laughs> so these, these 20,000 emus descend on this tiny little farmland, like basically a hamlet in the middle of but f- nowhere WA. Amazing. Um, I think at the most it had about 100 inhabitants in this area and these are all people on their, their little farms just trying to get by, just trying to survive. And these Wait, emus... you said 20,000 emus? 20,000 emus. And 100 people. 100 people. 200 yeah. emus per person. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I couldn't take down 200 emus. Well, it turns out it was quite difficult to take down even one. <laughs> $50 on the emus. So um, the, the emus, they also have noticed that there's a drought going on. And they're like, oh, look at all this lovely farmland <laughs> covered in delicious wheat. Look at all these... Lovely humans with the liquid inside their bodies. They could nourish us for months, mother. <laughs> Don't know why it's Norman Bates. <laughs> um, so I'm going to quote directly from an article on nomadsworld.com. The farmers were obviously not happy because their wheat crops were being destroyed. <laughs> the emus almost damaged fences, which allowed rabbits to get through and to also destroy the crops. Yay, bunnies. Yeah. Shout out to rabbits, which the English also introduced to Australia for no good reason. Oh, but we also have to shout out Norfolk at this point, and Norwich in particular, because we found out that the Australian um, wire fences were coming from Norwich this week. That's right. Shout out also to the Bridewell Museum. (laughs) God, this episode is nothing but shout-outs and foul Australian language. Um, so basically, that you know, the, the the farmers weren't very happy. They they complained very very loudly, and people in government listened. Uh, so in 1932, the Australian government approved a military operation uh, right to now. take down the emu foe. That sounds like overkill, though. 
Um, it wasn't a large military operation. It was uh, one chappy major, and now I apologise to the Welsh, Gwynedd Purvis Wyn Aubrey Meredith. Nice. Of the Royal Australian Artillery's 7th Hel- Heavy Artillery. 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 A small party of soldiers. They had two Lewis guns, which are apparently uh, basically like machine guns. Right. That they had pretty much mounted on jeeps. Um, And 10,000 rounds of ammunition. (laughs) That means each bullet has to take out two emus. Yeah. So doing the maths there, like, well, 10,000 rounds... But still, that's half a round per emu. Yeah. They're not really allowing themselves many uh, kind of misses. And emus are quite skinny. They're quite skinny and flighty birds. Like, obviously, they don't fly. But, like, they they wiggle around a lot, emus, right? Yeah. They're also, like, for such a huge bird, they're incredibly good at camouflaging themselves. (laughs) So they basically look like kind of dry grass anyway, except for their heads poking up. And would you imagine when you're growing a lot of wheat <laughs> in a drought, there's a lot of dry grass around. Yeah. This is one of the things I have heard about emus is that, like, when, so sorry, going back to my traumatic time with emus, <laughs> sort of seeing them at a zoo in Britain, you know, they stand out. But I can imagine if you're in a drier place, then they do kind of just look like a bush with a head. <laughs> That's exactly right, Barnaby. Um, we actually saw some emus just like on the side of the road hanging out uh, when we were uh, driving around on holiday not too long ago. And the only thing you see is that like weird sock puppet thing <laughs> rising out because the weird m- fluffy back, they don't have feathers. They just sort of like have shaggy, stringy kind of bits of whatever trailing off their backs they really like it's incredible how well they camouflage into the grass um so honestly like half a round per bird is very ambitious (laughs) they just keep shooting bushes instead (laughs) (laughs) well so that's not the first problem they encounter fair enough um so after having been approved this military operation uh sort of stalls at the first hurdle uh, so, rain. Really? Yes. But they want rain because of the droughts. Yes, so the rain is good for the drought, but not so good for the emus. Basically, the problem is they want the emus to all be in the same place right. so that they can shoot all of the emus and not miss the emus. Okay. Now, this is a tactic that we'll, uh, we'll come back to later in the episode, which we'll see is probably not very well thought out. <laughs> uh, but at the beginning of October, there's, uh, some quite nice timely rainfalls. Everybody's very happy. Yay, rain. Uh, everybody that is apart from our lovely Major Meredith, who is having to delay his military operation because during this rainfall, The emus have scattered over a wider area. (laughs) (laughs) Was was there like a pond or something that they were getting water from 
in so, this hamlet and now they can go where they like. Well, so emus don't really, they can go like pretty long stretches of time without water. What they're looking for is like tasty bugs and things and grasses and shoots and right, stuff to yeah. eat. And that all needs water. So they're just like frolicking about basically just like in this, these world of plenty. Now the rains have come down. All the bugs have suddenly emerged from their hiatus in the ground. And- but, but surely that solves all your problems because now the emus have dispersed and aren't eating your crops anymore so much. Yeah, but now I've really got it in for the emus. In the <laughs> um, it's personal now. That's right. They've come. They've eaten our wheat. They've f***ed off, but we know they're still there any moment just waiting to come back and <laughs> nibble on our tender seedlings. So the the... The military party, they're, they're allowed to postpone for a month and they embark on a new kind of on their campaign on the 1st of November, 1932. And uh, I'd like to, to read you a kind of account of this from the Sunday Herald. Uh, this is actually uh, an account uh, from a, a couple of decades later, 1953, by their special correspondent. It, it comes from a, an article called New Strategy in a War on the Emu uh, and talks about this... <laughs> New Strategy. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it talks about this this first uh, not-so-successful attempt. And I'm just going to shamelessly read this to you because it's hilarious. So we begin. The operation which began on November 1st, 1932, was unique in the world history of pest warfare. That day, a small armed party of the 7th Heavy Battery, RAA, under Major C.W.P. Meredith, set out for the rich agricultural area in the vicinity of Campion, about 200 miles from Perth. The expedition was equipped with Lewis guns and 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The need for some quick defence measure was urgent because some (laughs) farmers had been permanently driven from their properties and others were threatening to leave if prompt action was not taken by the government. Early in this engagement, it became surprisingly obvious that open warfare against the birds was useless (laughs) because of the speed of their retreat and manoeuvre. And it even became apparent that the toughness of their feathered hides made them immune to glancing volleys of machine gun bullets. Wow. Is that <laughs> true, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Like, they're actually, by the end of this very short war on emus, uh, everybody seems to be very impressed by, like, how well the emus can take a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> which is not something many of them have probably considered before. Like, how many experiments do you do where it's like, you see an animal, you're like, I wonder how well that would take being shot. Just let's let's just try it out, shall we? Well, given that a lot of this is sort of British aristocracy, uh, yeah, I would have thought they'd try it on all of the Australian animals. Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, again, Amelia, I'd like to refer you to colonialism. Well, yeah, you you go in, you see how well you can hunt everything. Yes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you uh, you just put it in a jar and ship it back to London. Yes. And then you taxidermy it badly. Oh, so very, very badly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the second day, the expedition leader decided upon a more careful strategy. The party arose at daybreak to prepare an ambush near to a dam, towards which a flock of more than 1,000 birds had been reported to be moving. <laughs> 
when, just after daylight, a wave of bobbing heads appeared in the distance. (laughs) The detachment and armed farmer companions... (laughs) So the farmers are in on this now. <laughs> well, they're ex-WW1 fighters, aren't they? <laughs> Were you about to say WWE fighters? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Can we have professional wrestlers versus emus? That sounds so I, fun. I really want to see Dwayne The Rock Johnson just <laughs> hugging an emu. I feel like they would be the best animal friends. <laughs> Rock bottoming the shit out of an emu. <laughs> So, just after daylight, a wave of bobbing heads appeared in the distance. The detachment and their armed farmer companions were hushed in anticipation of a major victory. At a hundred yards, they fired simultaneously from several directions at an almost perfect target of lumbering befeathered bodies. (laughs) Befeathered? Mm-hmm. Nice. They were astounded to find, after several bursts of fire that fewer than a dozen emus had fallen. Whoa! Before reloading could be achieved, the birds were not only out of gun sight, but well on their way to being out of sight altogether. (laughs) (laughs) This engagement was typical of those which took place in ensuing days. During those days, apparently the emus began to improve their own understanding of the science of warfare. (laughs) Oh, shit, we're teaching the emus to fight. That's right. (laughs) The next thing they know, one of them's got hold of one of these machine guns. (laughs) Well, so a confused army observer on the fourth day sadly admitted that, I quote, each pack seems to have its leader now, a big black-plumed bird which stands fully six feet high and keeps watch while his mates carry out their work of destruction (laughs) and warns them of our approach. They've got a captain. (laughs) So... Major Meredith uh, has this incredible, I mean, typically of the time, quite racist compliment, <laughs> uh, compliment of like the uh, emus. Uh, so they, they quote him as uh, remarking on the outstanding ability of the emus to keep moving even when badly wounded. If we had a military division with the bullet carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. They are like Zulus, whom even dum-dum bullets could not stop. Wow. Great, Major Meredith. Thanks for that. (laughs) I mean... They're like Zulus, and we've shot a lot of Zulus, so we know. Didn't the Zulus, like, wipe out a large bit of the British Army, though? There is that. Yeah. Um, So, you know, they're, they're... tactics are pretty shoddy uh the first thing they they try and like they spot this pack of 50 birds but the birds are too far away oh no so then they try and herd the birds into an ambush uh but the birds are like well this split into small groups (laughs) and then just like run away Um, so two days later on the 4th of November, they, they're like, okay, this time we're gonna, you know, we're gonna ambush them near a local dam. We're gonna herd these, these emus in. Um, the gunners waited, you know, in silence until the birds came ever closer into within uh, gun sight. Um, they're in close enough proximity to open fire. Uh, but they managed to kill 12 birds before the gun jammed. Oh, wow. This has got to be so embarrassing. If you were in World War One, 
You've settled down, become a farmer. Now all your farmland has been eaten by emus, and you can't take down like a single emu with presumably the same weapons that you were using <laughs> in World War One. <laughs> I mean, I'm just really impressed that the emus seem to have developed guerrilla tactics, <laughs> despite the fact that they are the larger force. Typically, it's the smaller force that has to engage in guerrilla tactics. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, everybody in all of the, the kind of newspaper articles I've read about this, everybody just has nothing but like glowing recommendations <laughs> of the emu tactics. As they a result, can't... we are thinking of recruiting the emus into the armed services. <laughs> like... Was there was there some kind of national bad th- feeling towards the army at this time? That like were they trying to make fun of the army um, particularly? So it didn't. It, it wasn't well received elsewhere. Um, so uh, photographs. So they had actually embarked on this campaign with like a photographer to come along to capture their like excellent outcomes and to take photographs of all of the the emus they'd managed to kill um that photographer was uh you know not very busy (laughs) the entire (laughs) time um but they did take some photographs and those photographs uh did make it into newspapers on the sort of eastern more populated side of australia um and people weren't super okay with the idea of just going out and gunning down all of these emus. Yeah. Um, Despite the fact that that is clearly not what happened, actually. <laughs> they didn't, well, they didn't successfully gun them down. So I've actually uh, got this amazing quote, uh, sort of quite bitchy uh, sort of article from the Perth Mirror on the 3rd of December 1932. So a little after the, the emu war had ended. Um saying that uh, considerable concern uh, in the East has been aroused over the slaughter of emus in Western Australia. Picture patrons who have seen shown on the screen in Sydney the emus fleeing from the barrage of machine guns and the sight of the emus wounded in fields deplore the war. On the other hand, no one has suggested any other way of dealing with the birds. <laughs> so they're a bit of, like, you know, they're acknowledging that the sentiment towards the the military operation is not great, but they're also like a little bit pissy, like, guys, you know, you come up with some solutions. Then. We must enter into diplomatic negotiations with the emus. <laughs> so on the 8th of November, and remember, this is a week after they started their campaign, after being stalled for a month by rain, mm-hmm. um, the Australian government is basically so embarrassed by this whole operation <laughs> that they they tell Meredith and his team to stop. A week? A week. That's They're not trying hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got another amazing article I'd like to, to share with you from the uh, Daily News in Perth. So this is from Wednesday, 9th of November, 1932. After a short, sharp campaign, the military operations against the emu tribes have ceased with dramatic suddenness, and for the time being, all is quiet on the Campion front. 
The White High Command, which had been sparring for time while putting the finishing touches to the plans for the Great Offensive, is clearly bamboozled by the quick turn of events, and after the fashion of High Commands is uncommunicative to the correspondents on the spot. Gossip which has trickled through from the chancellery at Canberra, however, suggests that the statesmen of the supporting power suddenly awakened to certain political and financial implications of the situation and decided that it was not going to be trapped into another long war. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, but they could have said it will be over by Christmas <laughs> and just gone for another month or so. <laughs> So the position, however, is indefinite. No treaty of peace has been concluded, <laughs> and the emus remain in possession of disputed territory. <laughs> it is therefore expected that regular military operations will be followed by guerrilla warfare, Yay! which may continue for years and may be accompanied by stories of horrible atrocities. Oh, my God. On the part of the emus? <laughs> <laughs> the emu commander is maintaining a studied silence as to his future plans, but it is understood that he is much impressed with the capacity for resistance shown by raw troops and confident that they will continue to uphold the best traditions of the race. He is credited with the intention to arrange for a suitable poem to commemorate the emu glory on the field of Campion. You know who really won... This war, the journalists. They had oh, a fantastic it's time. Beautiful. The politicians definitely also had a field day. I couldn't find it uh, when I was putting together my notes, but I definitely read an article where they're talking about how someone in Parliament is going, oh, should we have a, a commemorative medal printed for everybody who fought in the war? That's guys? amazing. Such just like shameless that's so bitchy ah uh, isn't it isn't it just so catty i feel really sorry for the soldiers <laughs> i know poor major meredith and yeah. his like tiny team who, <laughs> out there with this like uh machine gun mounted on a jeep trying to basically like get a needle in a haystack yeah they didn't even have enough ammunition <laughs> no um, so they did sort of, uh, after, you know, a few days, get a bit more support for another go at it. Um, basically, after the uh, military withdrawal, <laughs> emu attacks on crops continued. Um, and the farmers basically said, look, guys, you know, that that it's hot. We had some rain, but it's not enough. The drought is still going on. The emus are still on our farms, invading our farms in the thousands. Um, and the, the premier of WA, Western Australia basically said, like, guys, we, we, we need, we need some help here. You're going to have to do something. Um, they also kind of, they've gone back over their figures and decided that they'd actually, you know, successfully eradicated slightly more emus than they thought they had. Uh, so probably about 300 emus in the initial operation. But so- out of 20,000 <laughs> 20, yeah. emus. Yeah, 300 yeah. down, 19,700 to go. So um, on, on 12th of November, the Ministry of Defence uh, approved a resumption of military efforts. Wow. Um, and the following day, they basically went back out on country. Um and and went back out on the attack uh but they really they they genuinely like did not have a good 
run of it. Um, so Meredith was finally recalled on the 10th of December. And in his report, he claimed out of, yeah, these 20,000 emus, he claimed to have killed 986 using 9,860 <laughs> rounds of ammunition. Uh, so that's a rate of exactly 10 rounds of ammunition per confirmed kill. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> um, I, look, the, the, the military operation was just a catastrophic failure. Uh, but luckily, you know, Australia did find another way to battle their emu foe. Any, any guesses what it might have been? Okay, so the machine guns didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about things I know about Australia, it's usually fire. Like, did they set fire to something? No, it wasn't fire. Any what, other guesses? Was it commemorative swimming pools? I know they like a commemorative <laughs> swimming pool. We do love a commemorative swimming pool. No, no, it was that other great Australian pastime, the fence. <laughs> <laughs> You mean they hadn't tried fences? <clears throat> so they they tried some fences, but apparently not emu proof enough. Okay. Um, so <laughs> did they not think that maybe maybe they should improve the fences before they declare war? Well, the is, like basically, they've been doing like fences for horses, fences to keep your sheep in, fences to keep rabbits out. But emus, we've got to remember. Are Fucking massive, and they can like kind of they, they can jump over you, you know, your little your short little fence. But we've learned from the Norfolk Bridewell Museum they've had kangaroo fences for at least fifty years at this point. Well, apparently uh, it required a speciality emu <laughs> fence. Um, can emus jump higher than kangaroos? <laughs> I mean, I would love to see that competition, <laughs> wouldn't you? Yes. Um, so I, I just want to finish off this beautiful anecdote from Australia. It's really just a story of military success here uh, with a kind of final quote from that 1952 article where they're talking about this newfangled approach to, to winning the war on the, the emu pest, the fence. But even if some degree of victory over the emu is obtained soon for the long-suffering farmers and the continually harassed government, it will be by no means a complete or final victory. For the tough, busy beak and the large, heavy tread of the emu carry with them all the hardiness of the cruel, sparse environment of the emu's origin, the Australian sand plains. Through the lands of Mordor, <laughs> where the shadows lie. <laughs> Sauron, it would have been great if Sauron was just an emu. <laughs> or the orcs were all emus. See, I was thinking here, just sort of more like, welcome to Emu Park. <laughs> My God, <laughs> they really do move in flocks. <laughs> I just love that, like, basically the the moral of the story is that Australia is trying to kill white people and good luck to you if you want to farm that. Um, I mean, maybe we should have learned from this and, like, gone back to white people places. Stop <laughs> taking land from Aboriginal Australians. Uh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? And yet it's 
ongoing theft of country, <laughs> uh, like nobody's business. Yeah, so uh, I, I hope you enjoyed this story of the uh, war on emus. Oh, thank you very much. And thank you for being our first ever guest on the podcast. Woo! Well done. Woo! Woo indeed. And thank you for telling us about emus. And thank you for listening to That Time When. You can follow us on Twitter at That Time When 4. And you can suggest episodes to us at ttwpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the best thing you can do at the moment is give us a high-star review, five-star review maybe, on your... <laughs> no, just a high-star A high-star review. review on your listening app of choice. And thank you, as always, to Kevin McLeod for our theme song, Anachronist, as well as any other music that Barnaby's used in this podcast. And thank you for listening. Now, go out, invest in eels, and don't start a fight with emus. Bye! Bye!